Today we come to the last of the seven letters, chapters two and three of Revelation. This letter is to the church in Laodicea. Let's read it first of all, chapter three of Revelation, beginning with verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning or beginner of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, perhaps uh, better translated tepid, and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth, because you say, I'm rich and increase with goods, and I have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white clothing, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear, and anoint your eyes with isab, so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke, and chasten, or discipline. Therefore, be zealous, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will supper with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea, we don't find people named that today, but actually this town was named after the founder's wife. She was Laodicea. It was an assize town. That meant ever so often, and a person would come to do judgment in that city. Normally they'd come with great pomp and ceremony. This made it a very important place where periodically judgment would be set. Laodicea was one of three cities. They were all within sight of one another. There was Laodicea, there was Colossae, there's the letter to the Colossians in the New Testament, and there was Hierapolis, which means Sun City. So these three cities were all within striking distance and visual place of each one. Three very important roads came into Laodicea and an important river. This is very important for commerce and for other reasons, I believe. 
Laodicea, we need to realize, was a very wealthy city. Like Sardis, it was extremely wealthy. For one thing, it was a center for banking. In fact, many years before, when the orator Cicero came there, he did some banking there. One of the things also was very important for their commerce was beautiful, dark-colored sheep, sort of a sable, purplish color. And they would make clothing. One tunic was called a trimatera. In fact, it was so well known that sometimes the city was called Trimeteria. So clothing and these beautiful clothes, tunics and other things made from these dark colored beautiful sheep was an important factor of their wealth. They had a medical school there. Nearby were medical springs and two other things that were very, very important for their medicine. One was for the eyes. It was called tephra phrygia. Out of this, they would make tabloids. In fact, it was world famous for the eyes, this tephra phrygia. And then it could be ground up and could be used as anointment. There was another very important medicine for the ears. A variety of nard was used for that. So putting all these things and other things together, Laodicea was not just a wealthy city like Sardis, it was a very wealthy city. We've learned before in the year 17 AD there was a big earthquake and how that Tiberius Caesar, the emperor, helped build several of the towns. Laodicea was one of those several towns that the government and the emperor helped rebuild after this devastating earthquake of 70 AD. They had another big earthquake in Laodicea in 60 AD. It pretty well wrecked the town also. But this time, although the emperor offered to help, they refused it. They were rich enough to take care of it themselves, and they did. That helps us understand this was a very rich city indeed. Now let's look at the actual passage and bear all these things I've mentioned in mind because they seem to have close relevance at points. So back to chapter 3, beginning then with verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Amen means certainly. It points and highlights truth. Jesus is the truth, as he said in John 14, 6. Going back to chapter 1 of Revelation, Verse 5 talks about Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the dependable witness, and the first begotten from the dead. 
So here in chapter 3, verse 14, it highlights this fact that Jesus is faithful, he's dependable, he's a witness. So he is the truth. He witnesses to truth. He is dependable. We sang about him and that through him and his resurrection, we have victory. And we are to be overcomers because of his power and his strength in our lives. So this comes from Jesus, the amen, the true, the faithful witness. What does that tell us? For one thing, he tells us we better listen. <laughs> he speaks with authority. He speaks with truth. He speaks not only to the Laodiceans of that day, but to other churches of that day and to churches through the ages, even to us. So here's the one that's talking. Here's the one to whom we should listen. Now, what does it mean here when it says he's the beginning of the creation of God? I gave an alternate, I think, better translation of that. He's the beginner of the creation of God. What it does not mean is that he's the first one that God Almighty created. Doesn't mean that. He's the source, he's the origin, he's the beginner of all creation. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us he made everything. And apart from him, nothing was made that was made. Bearing that in mind, go with me to the book of Colossians, written to one of these three towns. Chapter 1 of Colossians, beginning in verse 16. By him, Jesus, all things were created, which are in heaven and which are in earth, visible and invisible. One of our songs talks about the things that we don't sing. See, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him, by Jesus, and for him. And he is before everything, and by him all things hold together. No, he's not created, he is eternal. Is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. And yet in these three, shall we say, persons, he made everything. So we need to listen to what he tells us. Now back to chapter 3. Verse 15, he says, I know your works. See, he knew about the things that the Laodiceans were doing. And they were doing some good things. But he said that you were neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. <laughs> That's pretty strong, isn't it? Jesus saying, because they aren't cold, they aren't hot, he's going to spit them out. So we see being lukewarm is not where we ought to be. We see that as a big problem. Now, verse 19 gives us a solution to that problem. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten or discipline. 
God still loved them because he bothered to discipline them and talk to them and point out their errors. Even though they were lukewarm, he loved them. But he wanted them to change. He called them to repent. So he tells that, and this is key, I think maybe to the whole letter. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So he calls them to change, to make that decision, and then to go on living in the light of that change. To be, go on living with zeal. I think this is maybe the most important thing that this letter tells us. We should be enthusiastic about our faith in the Lord Jesus. We should not be lukewarm or tepid. Have you ever tried to eat something that was not hot and was not cold, or just sort of in between, didn't taste all that good? And so Jesus said that's the way the church was. So he called them to change and to be zealous, to be enthusiastic about what they were doing for him. I understand a man once read a sermon and he made the statement, things have come to quite a pass when religion is allowed to invade one's private life. Imagine thinking like that. Religion, just something off here you think about intellectually, but shouldn't interfere with how we'd live. Of course, he was very, very wrong, was he not? I suspect the message that he read was from a pastor who was explaining how our private life and how all of our life needs to be controlled by Jesus. And so he was very off, wasn't he, in what he was saying there. Going back to chapter 3 here, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That was their self-appraisal. In the physical sense, yes, they did have a lot of goods. As a city, they were able to rebuild earlier. People would have known that. They were boasting how rich they were. Physically, that was true. I believe in our nation and in much of the world today, there are those who from a biblical perspective, are really quite rich. We have houses, we have cars, we have plenty of food, we have many other things. Considered these people and us today, we're basically rich people. But they were proud of their riches and they were pretty well thinking that that's the big important thing of life having all these possessions, all this money, all this land, all these other things. But in reality, they were poor in God's sight. God saw things very, very differently. And he goes on to say that. He says that you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Sort of like the king 
that had no clothes. <laughs> a little boy pointed out he doesn't have any clothes. The king thought he was fine. He wasn't. And so God saw the church. There was a need here. They were boasting of these physical things, but they were forgetting about the more important spiritual things. There's an old story about a lady who was rich, but she was selfish, and finally she died, and she went to heaven, but she was being led then to her dwelling place. And as she was being led there, they passed some very beautiful mansions. And in those mansions, she saw some of the people that she despised and looked down upon. Finally, they came to the outskirts of the town, and there was a very small, nondescript house. And that was a shock to her. She didn't think she should have such a small thing like that. These other people have these big, nice places. But then it was kindly explained to her, that's all we could do for you with the materials that you sent up. <laughs> yeah, there is a reward for what we do for the Lord. We're not saved by works, but God does take account of how we serve him. Is our service with enthusiasm, with zeal? Are we either hot or cold, hopefully hot, on fire for the Lord, you might say? That's what he's looking for, people who enthusiastically, lovingly serve him. And he takes note of every good thing we do in his name out of love. And so it goes on here about counsel, being counseled to buy from him gold tried in the fire. I think of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 where it talks about the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, might be found to honor glory when he comes, you see. There is that gold, as it were, that lasts forever. In the Bible, in the book of Luke, chapter 12, an interesting story is told about a certain man. He had a bumper crop, a huge crop, he had a few barns, but they weren't big enough to handle everything that he had harvested that year. And so you can read about it there in chapter 12. He figured, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down these other barns. I'll build bigger ones. And I'll fill them up, and I'll have a great time. I'll eat, drink, and be merry. The problem was he was thinking physically. Spiritually, evidently, he was poor, like is described here. And what did God tell him? Tonight, your soul will be required of you. Then what's all these fruits going to amount to? Who will they belong to? Certainly no longer to him. There's an old Spanish proverb that says there are no pockets in a shroud. <laughs> also, I understand that you don't find normally a U-Haul following a hearst being drugged by it. 
No, we must leave behind the things of this life and what really counts and what really lasts are the things of eternity. And so they were defective here and this man in this story was defective. What counts is eternal. The gold tried in the fire will last as it were. Going on then, back to verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich, ah, rich spiritually, you see, and white clothing that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. Now remember we talked about the darker colored sheep and the beautiful clothes that were made from it. Here he's counseling them to get true clothes, white clothes, symbolizing innocence and holiness and acceptance with God. He wants them to be truly rich and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And anoint your eyes with isab that you may see. We talked about the tephraphrygia. They were world famous for that, exported all over the place. But here's the kind of isab that really is important. It would help their ailing, sick, spiritual eyes that you may see. And whom I love, I rebuke, I tell them off, I show them where they're doing wrong, and I chasten, I, I discipline them. Now, if God doesn't discipline us, he does it, you see, to get us back on the right track. If he doesn't do that, that indicates that he's abandoned us. You know Romans chapter 1, don't you? Especially the last part of that chapter. It points out how people were going into sexual sins and other things and how God abandoned them. Abandoned them to their vile practices. That, you see, is a judgment. You don't want to be abandoned by God. But those he loves, what does he do? He disciplines them. He rebukes them. He loves them and wants them to change and leave that which is wrong for that which is right. Therefore, he says, in the light of this, be zealous, be enthusiastic, and repent. Change, make that decision, and carry it on in the rest of your life. Now, verse 20, this is a very, very familiar verse. Normally, it's applied to someone who doesn't know the Lord with Jesus knocking on the door of their heart. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup or supper with him. That's the main meal of the day. And he with me. Now, back in those days, they didn't have handles on the outside. So here's Jesus knocking on the outside, and the person on the inside has the power to open or not, not to open the door. And so it's often pictured 
as the unsaved and Jesus knocking on the door. He wants to come in. He wants to forgive. He wants to have fellowship with you in this long meal of the day where the work is done and you can sit down and you can talk and you can have good fellowship together. But the interesting thing to me, whereas I think there is application for the unsaved here to open their hearts to Jesus and to believe in him, basically it's written to a church. It's written to Christian people, Christian people who had become lukewarm, tepid, people who needed to become on fire for the Lord, people who needed to receive enthusiasm as they served the Lord. And so we think of him knocking on the door of the Laodiceans. He wants to come in. He wants them to receive him as their guest, the guest of honor, to receive him as the one with whom we have fellowship. I think of Luke chapter 24, where two people were walking with Jesus after the resurrection to a little village called Emmaus. There they were having fellowship together, and he's explaining to them the Old Testament scriptures and how the Messiah needed to be raised from the dead. This was prophesied. And later they said, did not our heart burn within us (laughs) when he explained these things to us and talked to us? And so in fellowship with Jesus, there's a blessed, wonderful, joyous reality. So he's knocking on the door. He not only knocked on the door of the Laodiceans, not only knocked on the door of the other churches, but through the ages he knocks on the door that we might open to him, receive his love, his correction, his blessings in our lives, that we might have dear, sweet fellowship with Jesus. This often happens as you read the Bible, doesn't it? This often happens, does it not, as you pray to God. This truly happens, doesn't it, when we open our lives to the Lord Jesus. We don't agree with the man that this should not affect our private lives. We agree that it should affect our private lives and it should control what we do, how we think, what we say, how we feel. So what a wonderful promise this is. Maybe you've seen the artist's conception of this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and I will supper with him, and he with me. What a beautiful, wonderful promise this is. To him who overcomes, it goes on to say, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. Ephesians 2.6 tells us he has raised us up together and made us sit together with him in the heavenlies. Colossians chapter 3, the beginning of that chapter I'm reminded of that in connection with this. Colossians, one of the three cities in visual distance of one another. So what a wonderful thing to think that even now we are spiritually seated with Jesus in the heavenlies. That's what it tells us there in Colossians 2.6. Seated with him 
in the heavenlies. Wrong reference, Ephesians. He goes on to say back in verse uh, 21, and am set down with my father in his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So not only does Jesus say it, but the Holy Spirit says it. Must be very, very important. It is. Some of you, I think, have heard all of the messages to the seven churches here. Some of you have not been able to be with us part of the time, but it's wonderful that you're here and at least can hear this last one and maybe some of the other ones earlier. These are messages for them then, for us now, for Christians through the ages. And be the Lord tarrying, not coming soon, then indeed ongoing message for the churches. But the prayer is that he will come soon. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And we are to love his appearing. We're to trust him and be ready for his coming. We're to be zealously, enthusiastically loving and serving in his name. And so may these things be a challenge and an encouragement to each one of us. Thank God for what he tells us, because he loves us. Lord, we thank you so much for your victory. We thank you that you love us enough <clears throat> to tell us our wrongs, to guide us into the right, to help us know that we are to fellowship with you, we're to take very seriously and enthusiastically what we do in service and the spread of the gospel of Jesus. May we love our neighbors. May we love one another. May we supremely love you. May we now dedicate ourselves to you. If there's been lukewarmness, help us to not be tepid, but to be enthusiastic for the Lord. Thank you for the promise of the white clothing. Thank you for the other wonderful things you've told us here. Thank you for our church. Really, it's yours. We would commit it again to you. To you be all glory and praise and honor, now and forevermore. Amen.